What if I told you that you can support your blood pressure and healthy CoQ10 levels with two chews a day? The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. That's like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 supports your cardiovascular health. Visit RadioBeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply on bundles and save 15% with the promo code DEAL. Cape Up is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Are you looking to learn a thing or two about getting your finances in order, saving, and investing? Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post Brand Studio. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Cape Up. Garrett Graff is the author of The Threat Matrix, Inside Robert Mueller's FBI and the War on Global Terror, and today is in that small crew of reporters that knows the ins and outs of Robert Mueller's investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. He's here to help make sense of the avalanche of documents and news out of the Mueller probe. There's a lot to take in, but one once unthinkable thing has become startlingly more real. The completely inconceivable idea that the president of the United States is an active agent of Russian intelligence no longer seems completely unthinkable. Graf explains this and why the Mueller probe is too far along to be effectively shut down right now. Garrett Graf, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Oh, my pleasure. So, Garrett, the Mueller investigation, everything about it is, to my mind, so huge, so complex. I was having a hard time figuring out, like, where do I even begin um, to start this conversation? So how about I start it here? In the Washington Post, um, we had a story, um, and we have this graphic. This is from uh, December 9th, where it says, Coincidence or Coordination? Russians approached at least 14 people in Trump's orbit during the campaign and presidential transition. And the 14 people, um, Donald Trump Jr., Jared Kushner, Ivanka Trump, Michael Cohen, Felix Sater, George Papadopoulos, Paul Manafort, Carter Page, Jeff Sessions, Michael Flynn, J.B. Gordon, Roger Stone, uh, Michael Caputo, Rick Gates, 14 people, Garrett. I mean, you used to live here in Washington. You know how how all of this works. It cannot possibly be coincidence that 14 people had all been approached um, by Russians. Uh, absolutely not. And, and you know, uh, again, you also know this as someone in, in Washington. One of the things that is so striking about this story is just how abnormal that number of Russian contacts truly is. I mean, this is not, mm-hmm. uh, you know, this is not Saudi Arabia or Britain or uh, another country that sort of routinely is involved in U.S. politics and, and where you might actually have that number of legitimate contacts over some period of time uh, in a political career or uh, a political campaign. Uh you just don't run across that many Russians coincidentally in American politics. And part of what is just so striking about this is how normal, in many ways, 
the Russian intelligence operation that evidently targeted the Trump campaign in 2016 truly was. And you see beginning, we now understand from the Cohen plea agreement and and Cohen court filings, uh, beginning as early as November 2015 and continuing right through the summer of 2016, what in the intelligence community would be a very normal period of assessing and recruiting potential contacts inside the Trump campaign, where you're using a series of different uh, cutouts, sort of people, uh, Russians linked to uh, top Kremlin officials, but not Kremlin officials directly, uh, who are basically approaching and testing a number of different Trump campaign officials and sort of all saying the same things of, um, you know, can we do business? Are you guys interested in in doing business together? Can we develop a special friendship here? And in every instance, the Trump associates gladly accept the help. And in fact, the only time that we know of that they turned down an offer of Russian assistance is illustrative in its own way because it was Michael Cohen being approached in November 2015 by someone saying, are you interested in some political synergy with the Kremlin? And the only reason Michael Cohen didn't follow up on the offer was that he said that he was already in touch with sufficient Kremlin contacts that he didn't think he needed more. And, and yeah, I mean, that was Garrett. When I read that, I was like, wait a minute. He said, no, thanks, because I already have my guy. I already have my person. That's ex- that was extraordinary to your point. It, 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 and that's. The only time that we know that they didn't uh, accept or or follow up on an offer of help and uh, right through uh, June 2016 in that infamous Trump Tower meeting, uh, they're sort of always taking these meetings. They're following up on the the conversations. They're trying to arrange uh, conversations with uh, the president uh, of Russia, Vladimir Putin. And it's, in many ways, uh, you know, these two tracks that we have seen unfold for the last two years in terms of investigation, where you have sort of the the Trump organization's work in Russia, uh, their real estate deals in Russia, and the Russian attack on the 2016 campaign, we've seen these as two separate investigations, but what Bob Mueller has done in the last couple of weeks is begin to make the case that this is probably one and the same, that there was no difference between the business collusion and the political collusion. You know, you um, to, to go back to your, your original point about the fact that this was a normal Russian intelligence operation. And you wrote about this uh, for for Wired, where you said, you know, what's been the conclusion that's coming from the special counsel investigation, you write, so far is how well normal Russia's intelligence operation appears to have been as it targeted Trump's campaign in the 2016 presidential election. And you say they did this with almost textbook precision. Um, 
And I just want you to talk a little bit more about you have these 14 people who are being approached by Russians, but they're not all being uh, they're not being approached by the same Russian or the same kinds of Russians. It's a whole casted a cast of characters who are coming at them. And I'm, I'm thinking of Mar- Maria Butina who um, is someone who is just pleaded guilty um, and is working out her deal with the special counsel. She pleaded guilty to illegally acting as a covert foreign agent. She is the one who's been, the the video of her has been making the rounds of her asking a question of then-candidate Trump about sanctions. Yeah, and and she is one of, it sort of, almost seems cliche but i mean this is shaping up to be a uh a russian novel in the grandest sense of russian literature with all of these bit characters coming in and out of this plot over months and years and maria butina is in many ways i think one of the most fascinating of them her handler in the united states appears to have been Alexander Torshin, who was a uh, Russian banker, uh, diplomat, intelligence-linked individual who was, uh, again, sort of flits through this story and has some deep connections to the Russian oligarch Viktor Vektelsberg, who – this oligarch who shows up at Trump's inauguration – and uh, also happens to have run a company that paid phenomenal sums of money to Michael Cohen for uh, unclear consulting services that he provided during uh, the early stages of the transition and the presidency of Donald Trump. And Maria was out there uh, trying to build relationships between uh, Russia and the National Rifle Association, the NRA, uh, which again is a a strange unpulled thread uh, of this investigation. They brought in uh, and spent something like $30 million on behalf of Donald Trump and Republican candidates in the 2016 election. And we know that federal prosecutors and Mueller's in, uh, investigators have been interested in where that money came from and how it funneled its way through uh, and out the other side. Uh, and there certainly seems to be uh, some focus around whether Maria was helping to funnel uh, money into U.S. politics through, uh, you know, from Russia to entities here in the United States to uh, aid Donald Trump. And, and as you mentioned, uh, there's this incredibly weird moment where in this room full of people early in his campaign, Donald Trump just happens to call on her. And she asks a question about his approach to Russia and sanctions. uh, And he sort of spouts off about how wonderful it would be to be doing better business with Russia, which we now know was a genuinely held belief because he was covertly trying to do business with Russia in the midst of his presidential campaign. Um, And and I I wrote uh, after 
the Cohen and Manafort uh, court filings last week that you know we have rapidly entered a territory of a worst case scenario for the United States here, where the thing that you most try to avoid in uh, in politics is a situation where the head of state of your country uh, can be blackmailed by a foreign power or a foreign adversary. And- right. And Garrett, you, you've written um, uh, the, the piece that I cited um, just a moment ago in Wired. It was an amplification of, of something to your point that you were just getting to that I want to uh, bring people up to speed on lawfare a year ago uh wrote a piece where they were, I think they were just kind of having fun um just throwing out seven theories of uh of the Mueller case and where where it could be case 1 it's all a giant set of coincidences coincidences and disconnected events case 2 trump attracted russia files russophiles case 3 the russian operation wasn't really about trump at all Case four, Russian intelligence actively penetrated the Trump campaign, but Trump didn't know. Case five, Russian intelligence actively penetrated the Trump campaign and Trump knew or should have known. And the point of your your piece in Wired is you believe that we are at at theory of the case number five, that the Russians penetrated the Trump campaign and he knew or or should have known. This is this is a big this is a big deal. It, it is, and then you know the two uh, scenarios above that. You know scenarios one through seven, from most innocent to most guilty. Number six is compromat, uh, you know blackmail material uh, by the Russians, and number seven is that Donald Trump was actively or is actively a Russian agent. And, uh, you know, we focus so much and we have focused over the last two years so much on this question of compromise in thinking about the Chris Steele dossier and sort of the most salacious mm-hmm. possible ideas of what compromise material uh, the Russians might have on Donald Trump. But we now know that they actually did have for the last two years compromising material and potential leverage on Donald Trump, which is that Russia knew that Donald Trump and his campaign and his associates had been lying about the extent of their business dealings with Russia and that the Trump Tower Moscow project uh, was both more serious and continued longer than they had said publicly. And mm-hmm. so, we're, you know, we're definitely in scenario number five where we sort of have hints that we're basically headed into number six. Uh, and it, it, the the completely inconceivable idea that we might get to number seven uh, and that the president of the United States is an active agent of Russian intelligence uh, no longer seems completely unthinkable. You know, when I interviewed Evan McMullen. Um, the Republican who left the party and was running as an independent in 2016 for president, I had him on the podcast. He's one of my early interviews. And at that time, I remember him sitting across from me in the microphone and saying flat out, also, and Evan McMullen is a former CIA operative. So he is from the intelligence world. And he said flat out that Donald Trump is an asset of the Russian 
uh, of Russian intelligence. And my eyes flew wide open because it was like, are you out of your mind? The man's running for president. He's 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 running in the Republican Party. He's the nominee. You're you're telling me that he it was so outlandish. And now it doesn't seem so outlandish. And I just I mean, you you are steeped in this. Do you think the American people need to sort of get over and by American people, I'm looping myself in this. Get over our sort of James Bond spy novel um, visions of what it means to be a Russian agent and think more real world about what that exactly means. Uh, Absolutely. And I think that we are beginning to wrestle with that uh, in some ways, in part because these twin filings uh, about Michael Cohen and Paul Manafort just in the last couple of weeks have so dramatically shifted the narrative of what we knew and just how bad it could be that things, you know, I, I have followed this closely for more than two years now. And things that I would have told you were highly unlikely, you know, black swan type possibilities, even as recently as a couple of months ago, uh, definitely seem within the realm of possibility. And that um, Bob Mueller clearly is building uh, a conspiracy case here that appears more tightly intertwined than we had perhaps once considered. Um, And part of what I mean by that is remember, federal prosecutors and special counsel Robert Mueller have identified two separate criminal conspiracies that aided the election of Donald Trump in 2016. One was run by the Russian government and involved the Internet Research Agency and the military intelligence unit, GRU, and attacks on the DNC and John Podesta and state-level voting machines, as well as lots of Facebook bots and trolls, and and might very well have involved something even more complicated with WikiLeaks uh, and potentially ties to Americans. Separately, Prosecutors in the Southern District of New York, federal prosecutors in Manhattan, have identified this campaign finance conspiracy uh, that Michael Cohen helped shepherd these hush money payments through to uh, cover up extramarital affairs by Donald Trump in the final weeks of the election. Uh, And that that clearly is now a larger conspiracy. We've learned this week now that the parent company of the National Enquirer was involved in the conspiracy, has been granted immunity, and has made clear that they participated in the conspiracy in order to help the electoral chances of, of Donald Trump. And that Michael Cohen has stood up in court and said that he was directed to do this by Donald Trump himself. Uh, And because of what we know about the ethics that prosecutors have to abide by, uh, we know that the prosecutors aren't just taking Michael Cohen's word about that. Of course, remember, he's he's saying this in the context of pleading guilty to lying to investigators. So they're not just going to be like, oh, well, now Michael Cohen's telling us this. They have 
solid documentary evidence, perhaps even direct recordings of the conversation that make clear that Donald Trump participated in this criminal conspiracy. Now, to what Michael Cohen's plea agreement about lying to Congress says is that the central figure in one of those criminal conspiracies, Michael Cohen, was attempting to contact and get help from the central figure of the other criminal conspiracy, Vladimir Putin, in the midst of this presidential campaign while Russia was actively working to attack Hillary Clinton and aid Donald Trump. And so this is sort of very quickly becoming one big story and the implications of it being one big story is something that I think we as a nation are really unprepared for. Right. One big story. But also, you know, Rachel, Rachel Maddow, a couple of weeks ago, did an incredible 25 minutes worth of television connecting all of these dots and said, we as a nation have to sort of wrap our heads around the fact that we're not looking at two or or two separate operations, but that the Russian um, operation was one complete operation. The Trump Tower Moscow um, deal was part and parcel of the Russian interference in in the 2016 election. Right. And, and part of this, of course, remember, is understanding the reality of Russia, of, of modern Russia un, under Vladimir Putin, which is there is no distinction in Russia between the Russian business world, the Russian government world, and the Russian intelligence world. It's not like the United States where, you know, we have some corporate leaders, we have some political leaders, we have some intelligence leaders. They don't necessarily know each other. They all have separate power bases. You know, the business leaders are, are ultimately all answering to Wall Street. No, there is no one who has power in Russia unless it is personally granted by Vladimir Putin. So the fact that Donald Trump is in one channel having conversations about a business deal with Vladimir Putin uh, is completely inseparable from the idea that Vladimir Putin is sitting here directing the intelligence and military operations uh, to attack Donald Trump's opponent and build up uh, Trump himself in the election. Cape Up is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Are you looking to learn a thing or two about getting your finances in order, saving, and investing? Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post Brand Studio. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. You sent out a, you sent out a tweet where you said when it was revealed that AMI, the company that uh, owns the tabloid that paid off um, uh, Karen McDougal and Stephanie Clifford, uh, a.k.a. Stormy Daniels, um, you sent out a, and, and that they admitted to this and were not going to face any kind of prosecution. You tweeted out, Donald Trump should be quite worried about the number of people around him providing, quote, substantial cooperation to prosecutors. There's a lot that we know, but I would suspect you would say, as someone who has been following this for intensely for two years, 
that there's a whole lot more that we still don't know. Are there two or three pieces of information, puzzle pieces, that you are dying to find out that would help make the the, the giant puzzle of the forest that we're all putting together more clear? Yeah, absolutely. You know, again, I think it's really important, and one of the things that I've strived to do in my reporting and writing on this is try to make clear what the frameworks are and try to help give people structure about how to think about this. And mm-hmm. uh, so really, uh, you know, we talk of the Mueller probe as if it's one thing, but there are really um, five and actually now six separate investigative avenues that we're seeing pursued. So there's oh. a bucket of this that is about money laundering and business deals. And this is where we've seen Paul Manafort and Rick Gates indicted for their money laundering scheme with Russian oligarchs. Then there's a active cyber intrusion and attack component to it. This is the indictments that we have seen Mueller bring against the GRU for their attacks on John Podesta, the DNC state-level voting systems. There's a third bucket that is the Russian information influence operations. These are the Twitter bots and Facebook trolls of the Internet Research Agency. The fourth bucket is the question of these sketchy Russian campaign and transition contacts. And that's everything from George Papadopoulos to uh, uh, to Michael Flynn during the transition uh, you know, we now know it was, you know, uh, Michael Cohen uh, in November 2015. It's Michael Cohen planning these trips uh, over the spring of 2016 to try to set up the Trump Tower Moscow deal. There's a there's sort of this fifth bucket, which is the one that we get really obsessed with, which is the question of obstruction of justice and whether the president or people in his circle uh, obstructed justice or attempted to obstruct justice in the firing of Jim Comey, the attempts to try to pressure Jim Comey into shutting down the investigation of Michael Flynn and, and more. Um, and it, and in fact, there's some reason to believe just from the last you know, week that that obstruction investigation might be bigger and longer than we have been anticipating because what we have seen is – uh, both Michael Cohen and Paul Manafort in their uh, sentencing uh, documents from the special counsel discuss contacts with the White House well into uh, 2017 and 2018 even uh, to, to coordinate their lies, uh, potentially maybe suborn perjury, uh, maybe even some uh, light witness tampering. Uh, along the way. And then there's this whole separate sixth investigative bucket being run by the Southern District in New York, the federal prosecutors in Manhattan, looking at the Trump organization itself. And this is Michael Cohen's uh, campaign finance violations. But it's also sort of this, uh, you know, this strange thread that we've seen unfolding where Alan Weisberg the Trump CFO uh, has been granted immunity and is cooperating with investigators. Um, 
And in some ways, remember, this is the area where the president might end up with the greatest immediate criminal liability because this is the only place that he's been personally identified in court papers as individual one, uh, mm-hmm. as the person who directed Michael Cohen's uh, to to do this campaign finance uh, conspiracy. And, and of course, individual one is a pseudonym, but elsewhere in those court documents, prosecutors identify pros- uh, individual one as someone who became president of the United States in January 2017, which yeah, uh, that was my fa- that was my favorite part of the thing because, and I'm surprised people they just say, "Oh, individual one is President Trump," without saying in the documents they make it clear they define who individual right. one is. It, it really narrows down the potential pool of suspects <laughs> when you talk about who became right. president in January 2017. And so, you know, if you sort of look at these six different buckets, you know, Mueller and prosecutors have laid down the corners of the investigation that they're working towards. And what we're beginning to see in these last couple of weeks is how these dots connect and Mm -hmm. that a lot of this, uh, a lot of the next stage of this investigation is clearly going to focus on what Americans participated in this plot. That you know, we've sort of laid out these questions about uh, Russia and its role, and now the question is, what is the American role in this plot? And you know, you ask about sort of specific questions or specific breadcrumbs that we've seen in these documents, and they're just littered with things that you have to imagine. Uh, Bob Mueller and the prosecutors are putting down for specific reasons. Because Mm -hmm. one of the things that you have to understand about uh, court filings is you normally want to try to boil them down to the simplest set of facts possible. That each time you add an additional fact, each time you add an additional phrase, you are raising the burden of proof that you face in a courtroom potentially down the road. And Uh so Mueller is laying out all of these breadcrumbs in his documents that uh, that, uh, that are just so intriguing. And you have to think, point to puzzle pieces that we haven't seen yet. Um, And and just Mm -hmm. to sort of point out a couple of them that I think are are really significant. in in Mueller's plea agreement with Michael Cohen about lying to Congress, he points out, Mueller points out, that the Trump Tower Moscow deal died on uh, June 16th, 2016, which is the precise day that the DNC hack becomes public. That up until right. that day, Michael Cohen had been planning to travel to Moscow to pursue this project. And on that day, he meets Felix Sater, the uh, real estate developer and, and sort of Rasputin-like figure in much of this, and, and says, trips off, deals off. And you have to think that Mueller is pointing us to a bigger significance by singling out mm-hmm. that that deal died on that day. Similarly, uh, there's another odd date coincidence, which is that the Internet Research Agency's Facebook uh, bots and Twitter trolls were promoting a Down with Hillary rally 
for the end of July that they had spent weeks uh, promoting online that just happened to be the day after the uh, the DNC emails hit the internet and are leaked on WikiLeaks. Similar odd... Oh, just co- before... Ju- ju- one second, Garrett. That was just... Um, in just before the start of the the Democratic National Convention, right? Exactly. Do I have the timing right? Yep. Got it. Okay. And then there's sort of this third interesting uh, phrasing in Mueller's indictment uh, of the GRU, the hackers attacking the U.S., uh, where you remember Donald Trump's odd campaign appearance that night where he says uh in the summer of 2016 russia if you're listening please uh find hillary clinton's missing emails uh i'm sure the press would reward you well what Mueller says in his court filing about the gru is that that night for the first time that's a phrase in the court document for the first time uh, the Russian hackers attack Hillary Clinton's email system. And remember, this is, these are Russian government workers. So the fact that they, in, according to Mueller, return to the office that night and, and attack Hillary Clinton's email for the first time after Donald Trump has asked them to certainly seems like something uh, that Mueller is saying uh, in a manner that he's sort of laying down some puzzle pieces that he's going to come back to later. Wow. It, G- Garrett, since you brought up his name only a gajillion times, simply because he is the special counsel, I want you to talk more about about Robert Mueller because you are basically um, – his biographer. I mean, you, you've you've written a book about the FBI where he figures prominently. Um, you wrote a big piece for Wired about him. Um, how how are we underestimating Robert Mueller? Well, I think there are two things that we are uh, uh, underestimating in this. Uh, about Mueller and his approach. Uh, one is the sheer tenacity and the sheer volume of information that he has collected over the last 18 months. Um, it, you know, the amount of information that he knows uh, astounds us every single time there's a court filing. Every single court filing out of this uh, special counsel has been more detailed, more knowledgeable, more insightful, uh, and, and better informed than we ever imagined. You know, in most cases, Mueller is running four to six months ahead of where we think he is publicly. The second mm-hmm. thing that I think is really worth singling out is just how conservative his approach has actually been. Um, you know, for all of the attacks on Mueller uh, for being a witch hunt uh, from the president's Twitter account, uh, almost everyone that Mueller has targeted has pleaded guilty, uh, showing the overwhelming evidence that Mueller is bringing against them. 
The one case where Mueller actually was forced to go to trial with Paul Manafort, his prosecutors won convictions in every area uh, that they charged. Uh, and uh, we now know there's only one jury holdout away from a conviction on all 18 counts. And that Mueller has been very careful to refer out of his investigation any crimes that don't seem specifically linked to Russia. And that is interesting both because he's uncovering a bunch of crime that he is referring out to other people. Um, you know, some of Paul Manafort's business partners have been referred uh, to other prosecutors' offices. Um, some of the identity theft uh, perpetrators who were involved in the scheme uh, that involved the Internet Research Agency have been referred out to other prosecutors. Um, Mueller originally referred some of Cohen's crimes and his uh, bank fraud and tax fraud out to prosecutors in New York. So Mueller is staying very, very tightly focused just on Russia. And right. that's interesting in part because it tells us that the things that Mueller is holding on to connect to Russia in a way that we don't necessarily understand yet. Um, you know, when you look at the avenues that Mueller has been uh, following over the course of the year, one of the biggest is this whole question of Cutter's influence. This guy, uh, George Nader, sort of a, a would-be Middle Eastern power broker. This weird meeting in the Seychelles uh, involving Eric Prince, the yeah. founder of Blackwater. When are we going to find? I'm glad you brought that up because I I am waiting for the day when we get either an indictment or a court briefing or something that pull, that folds in the Seychelles into this story because talk about coincidence or coordination. There is no way in hell that. That is a coincidence. Exactly. And, and part of what part of what is interesting about this is that Mueller has remained very interested in this all year long, and we have seen no public movement on it whatsoever, except for the fact that Mueller is still interested in it, uh, which, because he hasn't referred it out to someone else, means that Mueller sees and is pursuing some type of Russian connection here that's not entirely clear to us. Hmm. Um, Garrett, are you expecting Donald Trump, President Trump, to fire special counsel Mueller before this is done? Uh, so, um, it, you know, who knows what this president is capable of on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. Um, I do think in many ways this investigation is now too far along to be effectively shut down, um, uh, uh, which is different than in saying that I don't think Mueller will be fired. Um, mm -hmm. But I think that the investigation has momentum at this point. 
It's spread across a lot of different prosecutors' offices at this point. So even if you fire Mueller, there are going to be other prosecutors and other investigators working in other offices to push this forward. And then the other thing is, remember, Bob Mueller at this point has thought since the summer of 2017 that he might be fired any day. And specifically, he's known that Jeff Sessions was going to be fired after the election since about August, and that even Matt Whitaker, uh, the acting attorney general, who, by the way, we still don't know whether Matt Whitaker is legally serving as acting attorney general, whether he is legally overseeing the Russia investigation, or whether he has even appropriately consulted with ethic lawyers about whether he can oversee the Russia investigation. Mueller has known that Whitaker was a possible candidate for that post uh, since the summer as well, because his name has been floated uh, before. So Mueller, I'm sure at this point, has had all of the time that he wants and needs to build whatever sort of doomsday scenario he needs for what would happen in the days, hours, weeks uh, after he is fired or removed from office. So, uh, you know, there are all manner of opportunities that Mueller has open to him uh, to uh, to keep this investigation going. And I'm sure that he is confident about whatever plans he has in place at this time. Garrett Graff, author of The Threat Matrix, Inside Robert Mueller's FBI and the War on Global Terror. Garrett, thank you very much for being on the podcast and shedding some light, helping me try to understand what it is we're going through with the Mueller investigation. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. The Washington Post's newest podcast, Post Reports, is doing something different. Every afternoon, we'll bring you stories about the state of the country. The number of false and misleading claims he made on the campaign trail the last few weeks is breathtaking. And the world. And I think that that is where climate change is starting to come in. It's causing fires to move more rapidly, to spread more rapidly, and also to burn hotter. The stories behind the stories and how we come to know the things we know. That's the sound of Antarctic snow. Healthy snow. Not healthy snow. Stories that capture the reality of the world inside and outside of Washington with nuance and unflinching honesty. That's Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers, and I can't wait to share this new podcast with you. Get it now at WashingtonPost.com slash Post Reports or wherever you get your podcasts.